temperature from the lights, wind speed, all of those things dialed in basically so that it's not too stressful for the plants. Yeah. To do you do you miss natural light? <laughs> I miss farming outdoors a lot. Yeah. If you know, when I was wrapping up my 14 years of farming outside, I was definitely pretty burned out <laughs> because okay. it's so challenging. The weather alone is enough to make you crazy. I mean, my kids mm. grew up hearing the weather channel on just like all day long. <laughs> you know, like little kids, like toddlers dancing to the music of the weather channel, like their favorite song. And um, I was just so dependent upon, you know, what was happening with the weather. What did I have to do? You're, you're working around the clock, you know, and you, you suddenly there's a storm coming and you have to do all these things before and all these things after and it throws all your plans off. Where now I have kind of a normal nine to five, much more so than I did working outside. And then you have all the issues of the pests populations outside, which the pests can be a whole lot bigger, like groundhogs. And I was just going to say animals. Yeah, animals and moles and chipmunks. Deer. And <laughs> deer and all those things, which can wipe you out overnight, you know, so... I don't miss that. Like my biggest battle was always groundhogs. I mean, it was just hmm. a battle from spring to fall dealing with groundhogs. Um, but there was all kinds of other pests and indoors you, you have a more limited type of pests that come in and they're generally out mites and insects for the most part. And, you know, they can be challenging because they can get a foothold in your environment and they'd be really hard to get out of, get, get them out of there. But you still, are dealing with less diversity of, of issues. But it's never quite the same growing indoors as it is growing outdoors because you have the sun, of course, and yeah. we still haven't been able to replicate that. And you just have the terroir, you know, of it all, the weather, the soil, the all that good stuff that makes your product so unique. So I do mm -hmm. greatly miss growing outdoors and I hope to be more involved in the outdoor production up in Michigan. Um, so I can at least try my hand a little bit at that. But um, I enjoy growing indoors, it, you know, I'd say almost equally when you balance all those things out. And what, yeah. what also I do like about growing indoors is you have so many cycles. So like when you're growing outside, you have one season, you know, and it starts in March and it ends in October and the whole season it's just like this anticipation of what's it going to be how good is it going to be you know how good is it looking come july like where am i at compared to where i was last year in july and if you have one bad weather year or you have you know some other miscalculations that's it that was your year <laughs> you know if it's a great you year, don't get to awesome. start over in eight weeks and yeah, try something exactly. again yeah. So if it's a great year, you have a great winter and you have some downtime and you can recoup and rest and learn and do all that good stuff. Whereas in cannabis, it never stops and there's no downtime. Um, so it can burn you out faster. But also each cycle is a new chance, you know, so every cycle can be the best one and you yeah. can have five or more a year. So you can hmm. you can R&D a lot more indoors because yeah. you can trial things much more quickly where outdoors it's like 
you don't want to risk too much R&D because if it doesn't work out how you wanted it to do, you're in bad shape. But also, you don't see your results until the winter, you know, the end of the of the season. Indoors, you can get your results a lot quicker. So you can learn and make adjustments and develop techniques and processes and trial products and do all those things much faster. Like cannabis it, agriculture is very similar to cannabis advocacy and cannabis business operations. Everything happens so much faster. Like <clears throat> we all use the term your life is like in dog years or whatever, where every year is seven years because you age <laughs> a lot faster. Yeah, in yeah. too. Because the stress of it and the, the rapid changes can just uproot you in a second. Just from like a legislative perspective, you're always wondering what's going to happen next with banking or with this or with that. And um, so it it's a new type of stress that you have to accept and you have to find a rhythm to be able to handle because it doesn't stop. And you could think every everything could be going perfectly and they could change one regulation and it can throw off your entire business, hmm. you know? So um, it's, it's a different kind of stress. It definitely is a challenge to adjust to, but then it offers all kinds of opportunities that you don't get in other industries as well for growth and for development of your career and techniques and all that sort of stuff. And so it's exciting and it's interesting. And I, I have always been into that, the exciting, interesting part. Side of life. So <laughs> it works pretty good for me. Yeah. I like that. You know, I, I, a question kind of comes up um, because you worked out in the field and all these variables you just mentioned, um, and then you go indoors and you can kind of, you, you can protect your crop from a lot of those challenges, those natural challenges that you might deal with outside. You know, I, I do plants. And, and cannabis or, or plants in general, do they need to have a super consistent environment that you can give them indoors? Or have you learned from being outdoors, plants are pretty resilient. They kind of roll with the punches. They'll recover. They maybe actually might express some quality characteristics um, by being, you know, exposed to these variabilities that we just can't or, or, or are afraid to recreate indoors? Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. And it's something I think about a lot because as I get better at, let's say, dialing in the environment, you know, I have a great building engineer now that is able to really do some pretty advanced programming on our control system. And I've lately been thinking to myself, wait, when, when am I getting to the point where this might be not stressful enough that yeah. I start to lower potency or lower yield or whatever. But it's still, there's still such little knowledge about all that. It's really just, you know, you're really just guessing for the most part as to what is truly happening because there's so many variables. You know, if you were able to control all the variables except one and say, when I increase wind speed, the plants are under more wind stress and I see higher potency, that would be great. And then we could take that knowledge and, and move forward with it. And we do see now, fortunately, a lot more studies being done on cannabis agriculture. And 
we're this is an exciting time because we're going to be able to learn much more about things that we can do like that. But there's still so many variables in an indoor environment that you really never get the chance to look at just one. You know, like you have doors opening and closing and you have humidity changes based on the temperature outside or you have machines that fail on a certain time or you have you know lights that might run hotter under certain because they're wearing out and they're not all consistent or you know there's there's so so many variables that i found that it's very very hard to really make a lot of great you know analysis out of particular things indoors my general theory like my general school of thought is still keep the plants less stressed <laughs> in indoor agriculture because and probably in outdoor agriculture as well because there's going to be more than enough stress points that they're going to um, encounter in their life cycle that we don't really need to add to them i am probably like at the opposite end of this of the spectrum compared to a lot of other growers that really think you need to do a lot of like uh, high stress training, like super cropping or different types of things to potentially increase yields or cannabinoids. And I, there, I'm sure there is some science behind different high stress techniques that have an impact. One thing that I have done that is a little higher stress, and, and this is really just based on, I think it was Darren Kaplan's research, was um, drought stress. And I do find drought stress kind of interesting. And I do, I had been using some like kind of calculated drought stress in the field for different culinary herbs. So like drought stressing um, thyme or, or, or basil. And there's studies on all of those. So you can always look back to different crops and find drought stress studies. There's mm-hmm. hundreds in, in like aromatic herbs and stuff like that. Um, so I like to dig into a lot of those studies and see, hmm, what, you know, if this affects this culinary herb this way, maybe I can try that with a medicinal herb and same benefits. And then now that there's starting to be some studies on cannabis, like the study I was mentioning showed that like drought stress in week seven raised potency across maybe a couple cultivars. And so I have noticed at least what I appear is a direct correlation between some induced drought stress in late flower and higher potency. And I think it kind of makes sense because yeah. you're withholding water. So you're, you're, you have less like water in the flower and the cannabinoids or chemical constituents will kind of naturally be a little more concentrated because the biomass is just lower yeah. and they have the same amount of chemical constituents there. But also I think, you know, there's definitely some, types of stress like that, that you can incorporate to potentially raise potency. I think I may have been overwatering a bit in late flower earlier. And as I've kind of started to like draw back on water in the last two weeks, I have seen increases in potency. Is it directly related to that? Pretty hard to say, you know, cause I've done other things too. And I've reduced temperatures more in late flower and I've you know, I'm sure there's a bunch of other things that I've changed in how I manage the flowers as I get into late flower. And unfortunately, it's still hard to do a lot of research and development in a commercial cultivation facility because of the way things are regulated. I would love to have an R&D room that was unregulated 
that I could run 25 plants in and try different lights and try different techniques and different methods. But that then eats into our regulated space for production. So like, it's unfortunate that the way it's, we're regulated in Ohio here, we can't do that. And it, it happens with plant count everywhere else too, because you have to subtract from your production to be able to have those same plants to do R&D. So it's really hard. And to they do don't R&D. care. The regulators don't care if you have an no. R&D area and, and separate that from your total plant no. count or room size or whatever. I mean, you know, it's something maybe we could discuss more and try and negotiate into the regulations because it would be helpful for everybody and you could become more sustainable and you could use less energy and do a lot of things like CO2 is one I've been thinking about lately. Like when, when, when does it make sense to taper off CO2? You know, like some people run 1500 PPMs all the way until the day they cut the plants down. Is it necessary? It's hard to say, you know, is it, could we be wasting CO2? Probably, you know, like I taper off usually two weeks before harvest and I go down to ambient at the end, you know, could I do that three weeks earlier? Do I even need to go to 1500 PPMs? I don't know. You know, it's, it's hard to say. So I think there to, to have more R and D built into regulations would be really helpful and to be able to, you know, set aside funding to do that. Like, you know, if we could have more funded research, then we would be able to do a whole lot of things that'll really propel us to the next level. And we'll probably realize we were doing things for years and decades that we didn't need to do that were wasteful or we weren't doing things that we could have been doing to improve yields or improve potency or all those things. So it's super interesting. I love digging into all the research. I get so excited when new podcasts come out and, you know, new science comes out that shows us how to grow plants better. I mean, it's amazing. And it's cool because it's also new for cannabis. So we're like still on the cutting edge of learning all these exciting things. So yeah, I love it. I love all the content now. It's just like, I'm like a sponge just trying to soak it all up, you know? Agreed. I, I'm, I'm grateful that there's, you know, a growing interest in horticultural science and agricultural science that is being implemented in in cannabis farms indoors outdoors and in greenhouses um that sort of that aura of of magic is kind you know is is kind of getting i don't know poked through a little bit um and that people are more willing to accept the scientific research that that's already out there for other plants but also that there are researchers academic and private researchers who are trying to advance the knowledge and and answer questions that you may have as a cultivator, even questions we have, right? Like I wish that I had a lab. I wish that I could run some plants and test a few things ourselves or validate some of, you know, the models and um, the assumptions that we have uh, for growing all the plants that we're helping people grow. So uh, yeah, it's it's a very exciting time because the knowledge is just gonna accumulate so quickly, Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I want to ask, I want to go back just for one minute, um, or a few minutes about soil and sustainability and, and being organic. Um, you know, why, why to you is soil so important? And, and as a regenerative outdoor farmer, what were some of even the issues that you were dealing with, you know, in terms of 
the soil that you had on your land. And are you able to sort of mitigate that by having soil indoors? Are you able to control the soil quality better? Um, or are there things that you wish that you could practice, you know, from outdoors to indoors with that soil? For sure, yeah. I, I love, soil is one of my favorite topics. I love talking about soil. I definitely am not a soil scientist and I, and I don't have all the answers. But um, when I worked in the field, I was in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park area and there was phenomenal soil already in place where I started my farm. I mean, it was, it ha it was an apple orchard that hadn't been in production for a long, long time. And um, there was all kinds of brush and small trees and things like that growing on this basically half acre that I, I ended up working on. And so I was lucky enough to come into a place that had like beautiful topsoil, just great texture, great nutrient levels. I mean, I, I wish I could work in that kind of soil all the time. It was, it was magical. But anytime you transition over to growing crops, then you're starting to take away from the soil because all the nutrients that those crops are pulling out aren't getting returned to the soil. And all is kind of like that, that law of return where whatever you take away, you have to put back in if you want to maintain that equilibrium. There's a lot more disturbances, of course, that happen with tilling and, you know, any kind of products that you're using. And of course, um, running like a monoculture, if you're growing just one crop, it's going to pull certain nutrients and have a certain effect on all of the microbiological activity in the soil. Um, so I grew a very polyculture style farm there. Actually, I, I was lucky enough to be in a, in a documentary called Polycultures. I think it was called Polycultures Food Where You Live in my first year farming there. And I learned a lot about the value of a poly, polyculture production. So like the polyculture model is like how all, most or all small farms used to be a long time ago where people were growing mixed crops and they had animals and it was all a closed system and they were making their own fertility generated from all the animals and things like that. And they were growing different things and moving them around and growing more sustainably, you know, like a permaculture style model also is, you know, kind of an older school concept of, of not tilling and not disturbing the soil and growing trees and mid-sized crops and smaller crops and all that good stuff. So I, I kind of dove into polyculture agriculture right off the bat after I was involved in that documentary and really what a profound effect it had on the soil. Because when you're growing a lot of different crops, you have a really great crop diversity, then you have a great microbiological diversity in the soil and you're returning a lot of crop residues to the soil and you're able to maintain this um, quality. Once you start growing just one crop, that's where things tend to go awry. And then also, of course, if you're tilling a lot and you're not reintroducing crop residues or, or more organic matter back into the soil, then you start to really lose organic matter and then you start to lose you know, like water holding capacity and microbiological diversity and basically turn, you know, into a dust bowl type scenario. So um, regenerative farming was really important for me, which, you know, I mean, regenerative just really means kind of like giving back what you take away. And then also um, in many cases, the soil has already been deteriorated and you, you're trying to 
regenerated to its full potential. So regenerative farming really focuses on soil and soil health and focuses on adding diversity or improving the microbiological diversity of your soil so that it can be resilient to you know, climate change and, and um, adverse weather events and all that sort of stuff. So soil has always been really important to me. I mean, there's a limited amount of soil on the earth. It's, it's not necessarily a, um, a renewable resource. I mean, I don't think it at all is a renewable resource. And depending on who you ask, we have a limited amount of soil left to grow crops on the planet, and it's pretty small. And so we're deteriorating and displacing soil and, and negatively impacting it much more than we're rebuilding it and regenerating it. So it's really important for all farmers, I think, to think about soil and to try and transition into practices that will conserve or rebuild the health of soils that they're working in. Can, so I, can I ask you real quick? So mm -hmm. how do you regenerate soil? Are you rotating crops? Are you, you know, during an off season, are you planting nitrogen fixing legumes and clover? Like what? I'm assuming you're doing it in a natural way. You're not just adding a bunch of, you know, fertilizer or manure to try to regenerate it. Yeah. Like So it's pretty much all of the above, you know, and it's it's pretty complex. I mean, it's it's like it takes a long time to really understand how okay. to rebuild soil. I'm still learning a whole bunch all the time, and I've been at it for about 20 years now. But really, you're doing all those things. You're You're running cover crops, so you're not leaving soil bare. You're mulching okay. with organic materials. You're rotating crops, so you're not growing the same thing in the same place repeatedly. You're um, composting, so you're composting food waste or yard waste or crop residues, and you're building microbiological diversity. You're taking care of your microbiology and your soil, so you're not allowing it to erode. You're not yeah. allowing. You're not leaving bare soils in the winter. There's a whole hmm. you know, okay. gamut of things that you, of practices that you can do to increase the health of your soil. Generally, it involves with keeping your soil covered for the most part with some so, sort of organic material, whether you know your grass clippings are going back into your into your soil, straw, hay, cover crop residue is a huge one. Obviously, you can add tons and tons of organic matter to every acre by just rotating cover crops. Sometimes it may mean leaving the field fallow and not running any crops that year to rebuild the health. Okay. Um, controlling like your water erosion, wind erosion, just conserving the soil that you have, keeping it in place, which can be a whole bunch of management techniques from like wind screens to keeping a mulch over the winter, planting cover crops in the fall that'll regrow in the spring to help control water erosion in the spring or wind erosion in the spring. Um, nitrogen fixers, as you mentioned, mixed cover crops. So a lot of people are using like a nitrogen fixer and a grass crop or there's a lot wow. of techniques that you can use. Obviously sheet composting. A big thing that I did at Pine Size was I would bring down about 10 tons of spent beer grain each spring nice. or each fall. And I would spread that over my fields, and that really added a lot of nutrient to the field and a lot of carbon. And it also um, fed a lot of the microbiological activity. So, yeah. like, I had 
enormous amount of earthworms and just all kinds of different arthropods and creatures, everything, snakes and all kinds of cool stuff there um, that were kind of living off of this ecosystem that I was like nourishing basically every year with a lot of organic material. But it's really sourcing, you know, organic materials, wood chips, sawdust, uh, manure, um, spoiled hay, a lot of things that you can get for free that are basically a waste product of someone else and introducing mixed organic residues into your field to then sustain the life, keeping the soil alive for the most yeah. part, you know, keeping it healthy, keeping it alive, mixing it up. And then the practices that then you use to grow the food being like the least invasive, you know, no-till, limited till, running, mulching, mulching is a huge one, you know, knowing when to put down your mulches, knowing how much mulch you can run and, you know, like my soil at Pine Size was so alive that it would just consume things so fast. And that's a real benefit too about working in the outdoors is you have all of this microbiological activity. So like if I put down two inches of spent grain over an entire plot in March, by the time I went to put crops in there in April, it was just gone. You know, it was like, really? Yeah. It was like, you might see little holes of some of the grain here and there, but for the most part, like the organisms just can, you know, broke it down. And if you do that, that same kind of thing indoors, I mean, it just sits there and rots. You can't expect even beds really to break down material like that because the microbiological activity is just so slow indoors. Greenhouses. Aren't you controlling the environment? It seems like it'd be better. I mean, if you're using big, enormous beds, you know, then it can be pretty high, but it's just really hard to use that type of setup indoors. It's Mm -hmm. not really, you know, it's, it's difficult. You can do it on very small scales, but it doesn't work too great on larger scales. And just everything is so much slower. All the metabolic processes of the everything. Because so the plants grow faster, but the microbiomes grow slower? It's, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know about the plants growing faster, but it's just, okay. I mean, the, the cycles are faster for sure. And I'm sure there's some mi- microbes that are, you know, reproducing faster and you can keep them alive. It's just hard to keep the balance and the diversity mm. the same. Because outdoors, you just, you have so many things. You have rain, you have you know, a bird running over the field, dragging all the bacteria on its feet yeah. around. You have worms, so many worms. You have all these different organisms, like all the levels of the food soil. What Could you imagine if a snake popped out of a pot? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, even keeping worms alive, you know, it's, it's just so much more challenging because you just don't have the full system. You have, like, yeah. a little slice of the system. Whereas so outside, where do you get... So where do you get your soil to grow indoors? So, Are you, so, do you have a regenerative soil? I don't know, a source that you're using? I, Are you, are you repurposing the soil, your spent soil? Like, how does that work? So again, it's like, a, a, I have all those, all the above sort of thing, because, so the soil story is interesting because I, the, the first grower that was here, he had a soil that he was purchasing from the West coast okay. and it was getting shipped all the way across the country and, you know, it was okay. It didn't seem like the soil. It just seems I, wrong though, right? Yeah, it didn't <laughs> seem right. And then it, it wasn't that great. 
and it was nothing like the soil I'd been used to working with at my farm. Like it was like, it seemed very dead and very one dimensional. Mm. And then I knew I didn't want to use that soil again when I was in charge of picking the soil. And then, so I looked to like the main cannabis suppliers and cannabis soil suppliers. And, you know, there's a good one on the West coast that I think is doing a really good job. It's a friend of ours. And then there's a one in Colorado that's doing a pretty good job. And the West Coast one, the shipping made it not, you know, cost prohibitive. Mm. The Colorado one had free shipping, so I figured I'd go with that. And then I used that soil for one cycle. And again, I was it was pretty much a letdown. It, it seemed mm. very one-dimensional and not very live. And it was okay. I mean, it wasn't bad. But I wasn't super happy with it. And then actually I reached You're out to spoiled. Kevin. Yeah, I was spoiled. And so I, I reached out to one of my colleagues, Kevin Jodry, who is a big time humble grower, legacy grower. And he gave me the encouragement to just find a soil producer that was local and work with them to develop a soil that worked well for us. Nice. So I reached out to a company called Tilth, who is still the, the soil supplier that we use now. And the, the way I knew them was because they were... Um, they picked up our food waste from Great Lakes Brewing Company and they were a composter at the time. And so they were doing a lot of food scrap composting at scale. And so I had had a relationship with them for like, you know, 10 years or so. And they were just getting into making potting soil. So I reached out to them. I said, Hey, what would you think about trying to develop a soil that would work well for indoor cannabis? And they're like, absolutely. Hell yeah. Yeah. So they took their base model soil, whatever, that they were selling to some vegetable growers, and we tried it. They did their own research because they're really into soil science, and they determined that we needed to raise the amounts of certain um, nutrients that were in the soil to, because soil is a high demand, high nutrient, you know, hungry plant. And so we decided we had to crank it up a little bit, and then over each cycle we tweaked it and we tweaked it we tweaked the porosity the drainage the um, nutrient levels until we found something that was getting the yields you know that we're looking for and we've stuck with that ever since and the good thing about that soil is it's local so it's it's shipped like 15 miles or something like that maybe 20. And then the other great thing about it is I have this great relationship with this company so I can change it and adjust it based on what I'm seeing every time. They have great quality control because they're a small company, so I know it's going to come in how I want it to every time. And then it's also we've made adjustments to increase potency as well. So, like, we've made some adjustments to increase yield, but then we also made some adjustments to affect potency. And we saw, like, when I was first growing in that soil, we were averaging uh, 21% THC, and now we're averaging um, 28.5% THC, which a lot of that has to do with genetic selection of the cannabis strains. But we found some of the same cultivars to to improve as we made these changes in the constituents in the soil. That's So, so exciting. Yeah, so that's been really exciting. But then the other great thing about it is it's, 20 to 25% food waste. Yeah. So the food waste compost, and they're very selective about how they make their compost. It's all, you know, fruits and vegetables. It's not like yard waste and all that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, 
the food waste that they use is eliminated from the landfills. And so they gather all these, this great data on how much food waste they've diverted from landfills. And then that food waste is made into compost. And then that compost can, you know, constitutes 20 or 25% of our soil. So we're able to do another layer of good by preventing that food waste from going to the landfill. Cause we know wow. that's a huge problem. And then we then take the spent soil once we grow. Now we're not reusing the soil here, but we're reusing it in our greenhouses and in our outdoor production in Michigan. Cause it really? does, it is a process to recharge it and get it back to the, you know, cons consistency that you want it to have for indoor agriculture. So we don't have the infrastructure here and we're on a relatively small site to be able to re-amend it and repurpose it to be able to use it back in our grow here. And we're not in beds, which aren't don't work too well on three tiers because of the yeah, that, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And also there's there's a lot of other challenges which with growing in beds to just having high yield and good consistency and having pest issues that can carry it into cycle after cycle and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of challenges to it. Not saying that it's not a good practice and can't work. Cause I think in greenhouses, it's a great practice. And I think in indoors in small scale ground floor operations, or maybe even on two tiers, potentially it can work. But as you scale up higher, it, it becomes more and more challenging to duplicate the same, you know, a, a success. But in, you know, by shipping that material to our other outdoor and greenhouse grow, it's highly valuable. So we're able to get a second use out of it. We've also donated a lot of it that we couldn't ship to uh, community garden centers, to community garden groups here in Akron. And we've, they've built new beds, um, outfitted new hoop houses and all kinds of stuff with our spent soil and had great, great success growing in that as well for vegetable production. So it has a secondary use for sure. That Whereas is so cool. Hydroponic grows, that rock will going right into the garbage can. And unfortunately they use so much of the rock wool that it's not only is it unsustainable to keep making it because I mean, it's molten rock. For, yeah. Know, it's like, wow. It's, they, they say there's some recycling of it that happens, but I don't think there's a whole lot of I don't think there's a whole lot either. Yeah. So. so are you using soil one time in the indoor facility and then you're uh, repurposing are. it? Okay. So you don't get multiple cycles from the same no. soil. Okay. No, I mean, not. you could, but with reduced we efficacy, could, right? How hard we're driving the plants. Mm. Um, like really, there's not a whole lot left in, you know, the soil needs time to recover as well. Yeah. Um, so like if you're going to reuse it, you really have to have a, a way you can kind of store it. Regenerate it for the next year, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's challenging to just reuse it right then and there. Yeah. Um, but it's something we're exploring. You know, we're trying to figure out ways of, of needing less and getting more out of it all the time. But for our situation right now, particularly because we are producing really high yields, out of a relatively small amount of soil, um, it makes sense to, for us to still use fresh soil in this indoor setting and then use the spent soil in the outdoor setting or in the yeah. greenhouse setting. 
Also, you, there's a lot of IPM issues with reusing soil. I'm sure. I'm sure. And heavy metal buildup. And so, you know, we're we're real careful to make sure we're not running into those issues, so they don't become bigger problems that then require more inputs and labor and all that sort of stuff. So, Christine, let me ask you my my last uh, question here. What do plants crave? What does cannabis well, crave? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you could, you could answer this question for all sorts of things. Hmm. So I think there's a, there's a whole lot of things, obviously, that they crave. And it can be everything from just like the essential nutrients to the right environment. But if I had to just generalize and say one thing that I think plants crave is care or attention. Because, and that is a little witchy and maybe that isn't true. And I'm sure you could put a bunch of plants in a room and, and have them all automated and run, ran by, you know, a robot or something like that. And maybe that would be enough attention. I don't know. But I know from my experience that having that personal connection and personal attention between the people that are growing the cultivators and the plants themselves I think is mutually beneficial. It may be hard to quantify because, you know, how can you necessarily see what's happening or know that the impact is there? And I think there is more and more research showing how some of these connections actually work. But what I do know about plants is that the relationship between plants and people is beneficial to both from my personal experience. And there's a value to that and I, that's part of why i like growing at the smaller scale because we're able to still have that individual connection even like right now some of my cultivation technicians some of our plants were hand watering instead of like automated watering and they've the feedback i've gotten is that they are catching things before they become problems with the plants whether it's like a pest or disease related but then they're also feeling better about their job because of that connection. Mm -hmm. And they're able to put more of themselves and more of their energy into the labor because they feel that connection there. So I think it's still important to have a personal connection with the plants and to give them a level of attention to keep everything going in the right direction and to produce at the highest quality and, and level that you can. You know, one of my colleagues from uh, like food production said, he had a quote one time on Twitter and it was like, there's something about the slow relationship with plants. And I think about that a lot. There is something about the relationship you have with plants that's different than the relationship you have with people or animals or anything else because it plays out so slowly and the changes and the development are sometimes unnoticeable unless you step away for a few days and then you come back and you're like, wow, you know, like look at how these plants change in three or four days. So you can't see it necessarily happening, but that slow relationship is good for humans. <laughs> I know that because it's calming and it's therapeutic and it offers like kind of like a meditative time when you're working with plants to maybe even learn some things about yourself or to regroup or reset. Like I know personally here on days, if I have days where I don't even see the plants, like I'm just on a computer all day and 
I go back and I see the plants for the first time, I feel physically better. Like, I don't know what it is, but like, I just, I don't know if it's the rooms, the lights, the plants, the oxygen, whatever is happening in those rooms. It seems like I physically get, you know, like I may have a headache and I may go into those rooms and my headache may kind of go away. And I don't know how to quantify that or say what's happening, but I know that the more time that I spend with the plants, kind of the healthier sometimes that I tend to feel. And so if that's the bacteria or the, you know, cannabinoids and terpenes there, I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it's a combination of a lot of things that when I have a more direct relationship with the plants, I feel it's like holistically better for me and for the other employees. So like I did a little uh, New Year's resolution or whatever, and it was to make sure that everyone in the business is, is engaging more directly with the plants and the different processes that they have, whether they're packaging or trimming or delivering. I think it's important for us all to have that hands-on sort of relationship with plants because of the therapeutic nature of it for us. But I think maybe there's a therapeutic nature of it for the plants as well. Like some of my technicians sing to the plants or, Do they? you know, tell them stories or whatever. And I like it. I like the witchy side of it. I like the, you know, kind of seasonal ritualistic yeah. part of it all. And it does, you know, maybe sometimes collide with the science side, but I think there's a good balance there. Of well, I mean, so much of our human history and culture is built around food and seasons, seasonality. I mean, Thanksgiving, right? The harvest, um, celebrating the harvest. Um, and, you know, it's probably no coincidence that Canada celebrates their Thanksgiving about a month earlier than we do. Or it's colder, right? Like they have to harvest sooner. So I think that all makes a lot of sense. And there's been studies that show that plants respond well to the music um, and talking to them. I mean, why why just talk to your pets? Let's talk to our plants as well. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, you know, I think it's so interesting how many people, I think what you're saying is a big reason why you find more, more growers or potential growers kind of gravita gravitating towards cannabis cultivation as opposed to vertical farming or, you know, this other indoor production of, um, of say vegetables and fruits, uh, mm -hmm. you know, kind of same idea. You're in this artificial lit environment, right? You're not outside in nature, but it's like, there's almost more of a willingness to do it with cannabis than these other facilities mm -hmm. that are very heavily automated or trying to be heavily automated. So there's less plant touching. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I kind of feel like there's something there that one of the reasons you want to be growing these plants is because you want to have the interaction with the plants. But once you sort of sterilize it and you let the robots sing to the plants and harvest and do the transplanting, all you are at that point is a data scientist, right? Which people are data scientists. They like doing right. that. But if you're looking for growers, and people to, um, you know, be paying attention to how the plant is responding to that data, eh, it's sort of inert in a way. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> cannabis is cool because, I mean, it is kind of a magical plant. It creates these chemical compounds that interact with receptors in human beings' brains. Yeah, so, that's true. I mean, there's definitely something 
going on there that this plant was designed to have this sort of connection with animals. This human connection, human yeah. Totally. So, and it's, and it's also cool because it does, you know, it's a, it's a plant that you grow bigger. It's not like growing microgreens or something like that. Right. So you naturally can't grow as many of them. So you get to have a little bit, even if you're like right now we have 2000 plants in flower. I mean, it's a lot of plants. We're definitely not having a personal relationship with each of them, but we, at some point in the cycle are spending some time with each and every one of them. Yeah. You know, whereas with microgreens, it's really pretty hands off for the most part and stuff like that. But it, it's, it's an interesting plant. It has a, a huge history of its relationship with human beings. Human beings have dispersed it all over the world and it's grown in this like evolutionary relationship for a long time. So I know there's downsides to having a lot of interactions with plants, like spreading pests around or disease or things like that. But to me, I still feel like the value of having the relationship outweighs any of the negative impacts and is important to just the sustainability of, of the industry. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a powerful relationship and it leads us to make a lot of choices and do a lot of things to, you know, continue to be able to have that relationship. So yeah, it's pretty cool. I like that. All right, Christine, well, you're not quite done yet. So um, I'm going to, I have a list of rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, so just answer in one word or one sentence. Of course, if you want to expand on anything, please do, but they're meant to be sort of short and sweet. Okay, gotcha. All right, all right. Are plants introverts or extroverts? I think they're extroverts. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Can cannabis create a more sustainable world? Yes. Definitely. Okay. What has the cannabis plant taught you? Trust myself. Ooh, I like that one. If you could ask researchers to study one thing about cannabis cultivation, what would it be? Tough one. Wow, that's a really tough one. I guess the thing that I'm most interested in is finding out the relationship that cannabis has with various microbes microbes mm -hmm. okay in the soil uh, i'm assuming in the soil on the leaves you know there's all kinds okay. of places that they have relationships with them but you know finding out which ones have valuable relationships with cannabis is something i'm really interested in right now yeah yeah we we tend to focus on the bad ones not the good ones necessarily right. exactly. yeah i'm kind yeah. of meaning more of the good ones yeah mm -hmm. have you ever brewed beer with cannabis I've never even brewed beer, so that's okay. my husband's job. He's a brewer. Yeah, has he? <laughs> he no, he has not actually. No, but he has, he's not much of a home brewer, so he's a commercial brewer. Okay, he works for Great Lakes actually, and um, so they have not there yet ever brewed beer with cannabis. But I think it's something that they're that actively researching. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So if you had to pick a vegetable, fruit, or herb to make a flavored beer, what would you choose? Oh, that would definitely be quince. Really? <laughs> yeah. Does it make a sweet beer? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's ever been brewed into a beer. I'm sure it probably has because it's an awesome fruit, but 
there was a quince tree in the farm in the garden the ornamental garden next to my farm it's it's not there anymore unfortunately but it was really old and every year no one wanted the quince because no one knew what to do with them so i got all of them which was awesome and it was it was quite a lot it usually be like 30 pounds or so and i would make quince jelly quince pie quince apple pie quince syrup everything that i could possibly extract into quince the flavor out of and put it into something i was doing because mm. it is just one of the most exquisite flavors if you've ever had quince jelly i have yeah syrup, yeah i just i love the flavor of that so huh. that's one of my favorites all right well i think well quince uh, for beer, it sounds like, and for everything else, you really don't hear a lot about Quince products. You don't hear a lot all. about it. No. Interesting. interesting An undervalued, underappreciated I so. fruit. I just, strangely enough, I just bought some Quince at the grocery store at Thanksgiving time, and I baked an apple pie, and I put just one Quince, cut up the Quince in it, and it was the best apple pie I ever had. So I don't even know what a Quince looks like. <laughs> I feel like that was named. It looks like a big yellow pear that is very, very hard, and you can't bite into it. It's so okay. hard. You really have to cook it for okay. to be able to eat it for the most part. It does soften up eventually, but it's not like a fruit that you just pull off the tree and you eat it. You gotta. So did it give it, it like your apple pie a crunchy texture, or did you cook it down enough that it was soft like apple? It gave it a little. It had a, it had a little crunch to it, a little more. Uh, I guess, you know, firmness to it than maybe the apple pieces, but it just gives it, it, it's kind of like a cross between an apple and a pear, and then it almost has a little bit of like an exotic floral sort mm. of flavor side to it. So it's just, I can't really describe what it did for it, but it just gave it that extra something special. Yeah. Okay. It's like, kind of, it's almost like an aromatic, but then it also just has like a, a sour, sweet, flavor that is just very unique and very delicate I guess really all good. right all right listeners where your well your homework is to go and find yourself some quince and try it and let us know Definitely. how you like it you don't eat it raw okay <laughs> <laughs> well Christine thank you so much um for the conversation we did really cover a lot of topics and and I appreciate everything that you are doing for the earth um, and for the soils uh, and for trying to make indoor cannabis production more more sustainable. Awesome. Thank you. And yeah. thank you for having me and spending all this time talking about sustainability and cannabis. Absolutely. And for all you do for <laughs> all of our facilities everywhere else to make them more efficient. From an thank HVAC you. Side. <laughs> Awesome. We're trying. We're trying. And things are changing all the time also with that technology and, sure. and the science. So um, we're also trying to keep up with it and, and provide the best and greatest solutions. So, um, awesome. yeah. All right, Christine. Well, um, have a great rest of your day. Go visit your plants. I am going to. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. It was great. To have you. All right. Fun. Awesome. Keep me right. posted on when things come out or whatever with the episode. So we absolutely okay. will. Awesome. All right. Thanks. All right. Cool. Thanks for your time. You Have too. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.